Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Daniel Smith for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash death, dying, and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. We seem to be overdue for an awful lot of catastrophes, huh? I mean, I've been hearing about them my whole life. Asteroids and solar flares and volcano eruptions. When I lived in Seattle and San Diego, it was earthquakes. The entire western coast of the U.S. seems to be on a hair trigger for an earth-shattering quake. Highways will split and bridges will collapse and the economy will grind to a halt. Sounds scary. But California isn't the only place that has earthquakes. Even in the quiet Midwest, they get them occasionally, if you can believe it. And that's kind of what this month's story is about. Kind of. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, a story about earthquakes and other kinds of moving earth. In Groundswell, secretive strangers arrive in a small town and set up a mysterious operation. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. Martha felt the vibrations rattling through the house, and before she had a chance to react, the last of her framed photos crashed to the floor and sprinkled broken glass across the kitchen. She had, weeks ago, in frustration, removed most of the art from her wall and propped them on the floor. But that particular photo, of her mother and herself, seemed solidly attached Plus, she liked looking at it as she cooked. Martha and her mother often cooked together before the accident, and it was a good way to remember her. Ugh, Martha shouted, and waded out the last of the tremors before grabbing the broom. She guided all of the shards and bits and specks into a pile, and then swept them into the dustpan with great care. She didn't want to miss a shard of glass and then traipse through the kitchen later, barefoot. Martha dumped the broken shards 
into the trash can and then returned to the now shattered picture frame. She removed the picture of herself and her mother and put the photo on the small desk she kept in the kitchen to hold her stacks of bills and then tossed the now empty frame into the trash with the broken glass. It had been like this for months in her small town, about 45 minutes outside of St. Paul. Ever since the black SUVs drove through town and stopped on that abandoned farm. It was only five black SUVs at first. The people inside them, severe looking people with crew cuts and tight ponytails wearing black windbreakers, set up giant tents, circus sized tents. But where circus tents might be brightly colored and at least attempt to look cheerful, these were drab and ominous, not only gray themselves, but seeming to yank the color out of the surrounding fields. The day after they arrived, a man and a woman arrived on Martha's doorstep. Without introducing themselves, they said they were with a local environmental agency and were setting up a study on the local ecosystem. With the climate changing so drastically, they said, they needed to monitor how wildlife was reacting. And they were right. The weather had been out of control since, in an effort to combat the great drought of 2023, the US government tried a number of undisclosed methods of weather modification and sent the climate into a tailspin. Martha's little village hadn't seen rain for two years, but before that, rain fell so heavily, the flooding turned the streets to rivers. Half of Martha's neighbors had abandoned the town and moved into the city, where it was much easier to access more than the essentials. But Martha, and those like her, People who were happy with simple food they could grow in small gardens and groundwater they pumped themselves stayed. The people in those first five SUVs set up three tents initially, a large central one where most of the activity every day seemed to occur, and then two smaller ones. When three more SUVs arrived later that week, they set up two more tents and by the time the month was out, 18 SUVs worth of rigid people had set up a small town of 10 ominous tents. Then, the earthquakes started. Martha and the people of her town were alarmed at the appearance of those SUVs, and the men in black inside of them, sure. But the earthquakes set them off. Who ever heard of an earthquake in Minnesota? Sure, they happened, rarely, but now they were coming fast, at least once a day. And that once a day would grow to one every few hours in the coming weeks. Frank Gorski, one of Martha's neighbors, had had enough just three days after the earthquakes started. This is bullshit, he said to Martha and his wife, Elaine, as they stood in their front yards, already sweating from the nearly 115-degree heat. That's the third quake this week, 
It's them. I know it is. Goddamn government. How do you know it's them, Frank? You don't know that, Elaine told him. Who else could it be, Frank said, not wanting an answer. Martha peered over the top of the empty houses on the other side of the street and could see the tent city in the distance. The farmland they had built on rose up to the top of a gentle hill and stood menacingly over that quiet community. It's them. Has to be, Frank said. Well, what can we do about it? Martha asked. Frank tensed up, looked back at his wife, who already had a worried look on her face. Frank, don't, Elaine said. But he was already marching back into the house. He came out a moment later with a shotgun rested in the crook of his arm. Oh, Frank, I don't think this is a good idea, Martha said. Frank, what the hell are you thinking, Elaine said. Frank brushed past Elaine and threw the shotgun into his truck, then got in himself. He slammed the driver's side door and started the truck's engine. Frank, get out of the truck, Elaine said. Martha hurried to the driver's side window as Frank threw it into gear. She rapped at the window, and Frank turned to look at her. Could you roll it down, please, Frank? Martha asked. Frank rolled his eyes, but then did so. What? You don't think I can handle this? Frank asked. There's nothing to handle, Elaine said. Elaine, Frank shouted back. I just think you gotta think about this, Martha said. What are you gonna do? Shoot someone? No. I just think they gotta know I mean business, Frank said. We don't even know who these people are. You could get hurt, Martha said. Listen to Martha, sweetheart, Elaine said. It ain't worth it. Frank looked past Martha to his wife and smiled. I love you, honey, but I gotta do this. Goddamn government can't just come into our home. He trailed off, and then the truck lurched out of the driveway. Frank! Elaine shouted after him. Martha and Elaine watched as Frank's truck careened down the road and then squealed off onto the dead lawn of one of the abandoned houses. Frank's truck shot between two of the houses and into the field behind them, throwing up dust in its wake. He floored it to the base of the hill, on top of which the men and women in black had set up their operation, and then he stopped the truck for a moment. Turn around, you dumbass, Elaine said. Martha and Elaine watched the truck sit at the bottom of the hill for minutes. Martha repeated a small prayer in her mind. Please make Frank come to his senses, her brain repeated to itself. She turned over each word, examining it in her mind. Please was simple enough, she was asking nicely. Make was tricky. She didn't exactly want Frank's free will overridden, but she did want him safe. 
Frank, of course, was the intended recipient of this prayer's blessing. Come to his senses. This was the phrase that Martha had the most problem with herself. She was suggesting to God that Frank wasn't in his right mind. And how could she know that? Elaine grabbed the front of her blouse and billowed it out, waving it repeatedly, trying to get some relief from the unbearable heat. Is it hotter this year than it was last year? Elaine asked Martha. I heard on the news it's three degrees hotter on average, Martha said. Jesus, Elaine said. Don't think he has much to do with it, Martha said. Frank's truck crept backward down the hill several feet. Martha assumed it was the first move Frank was making to turn his car around. Elaine grabbed Martha's forearm gently with the tips of her fingers. Martha's heart skipped a beat. For a moment, it appeared her prayer was answered. Frank was coming back home. But then, Frank applied the gas, and that old pickup rolled gently up the hill. God damn it, Elaine said. He's always been so damn stubborn. The two women watched Frank's car roll up the hill, creeping along with what was probably apprehension. Martha, her prayer unanswered but unwilling to watch her neighbor march up to what was likely a government encampment armed with a shotgun, ran into her house to get the keys to her car. When she returned outside, Frank's truck had reached the perimeter fence and was rolling along looking for a gate. What are you doing? Elaine asked, looking at Martha's car keys clasped in her hands. I'm not going to let him point his gun at a bunch of strangers we know nothing about, Martha said, hurrying to her car. Look, Elaine said. Martha raised her eyes to the top of the hill, where Frank had stopped his pickup and decided to climb on top of it. He cradled his shotgun in the crook of his right arm and used his left hand to shield the sun from his eyes. He's going to hurt himself up there. He's going to fall off that truck, Elaine said. Damn it, Frank, get back in your car and come home, Martha said. Frank suddenly animated. He waved his free hand around, pointing wildly with his index finger and shouting something that was impossible for Martha and Elaine to hear. He stomped his feet on the roof of his truck, incensed and becoming unhinged. Then Martha spotted what was making him so mad, what Frank was repeatedly pointing at. Two of those severe people, one man with his perfectly manicured crew cut, and one woman with her hair pulled back tight, had emerged from one of the tents and were walking towards Frank, slow and steady. With the fence between them, it seemed as though Frank thought himself invincible. He hollered until even at their distance, Martha and Elaine could see his face turning red. He screamed at the two of them as they drifted along forward until finally he let his voice rest for a moment. The woman, in response, 
said a few words back to him while the two continued their slow advance. Whatever the woman said to Frank set him off again, and he resumed his shouting. When the two robotic people were roughly ten yards away from Frank, they stopped, and Frank again paused his shouting. The woman, again, said a few words in response. Frank screamed at them once more, pointed his finger at them, and shouted a few single words, probably curses, for punctuation. Then he reached for the shotgun he still cradled in his arm, swinging it around wildly toward the two statuesque people in front of him. Before he could fire, Frank went rigid. The two strangers backed up several paces. Frank dropped the shotgun. It hit the roof of his truck and then fell to the ground. When it hit, it fired into one of the truck's tires. Frank raised his hands to his head, and then he collapsed, tumbling off the truck and thudding headfirst to the ground. Frank! Elaine screamed. Frank, no! She took off running, across the street and between two houses and into the field behind. Frank! Elaine, wait, Martha called after her, and then attempted to run. Something held her feet to the ground. Watch what we do, and then return to your home, she heard a woman's voice say in her head. Martha struggled against her own feet, which felt like they were being held by strong magnets to her lawn. She watched Elaine approach the foot of the hill, still at a sprint. On top of the hill, the two dressed in black had unhooked the fence and emerged around Frank's truck. The woman grabbed Frank's shirt by the collar and lifted him up with one hand, dragging him back around the fence and into the compound. The man waited there next to Frank's truck for Elaine to arrive. Halfway up the hill, Elaine stopped in her tracks. She screamed in pain. The only sound that managed to pierce the air, tumble down the hill, and reach Martha's ears. Elaine collapsed, and the man did the same to Elaine as the woman had done to Frank, grabbing her by the collar and dragging her into the compound. They put the two bodies side by side on the ground, and then the woman reached inside her jacket to retrieve a set of handcuffs. She cuffed Frank, and then the man did the same to Elaine. The woman straightened up and looked down the hill to Martha. They will be put to good use. Be good, and you will avoid their fate, she said to Martha inside of Martha's head. The man grabbed both bodies hoisted them up onto his shoulders, and carried them into the largest tent. The woman followed him inside. Martha's feet still couldn't move ten minutes later. The sun was relentless, and the heat was becoming unbearable. 
she could feel herself getting a sunburn. The shades of brown all around her, all the dead lawns and bushes and shrubs, seemed to reflect the light in insufferable ways, increasing her discomfort. Finally, in minute fifteen, her feet were freed, and she could retreat back inside of her home. In the months after that episode, more from Martha's community had confronted those people up on the hill and gone missing for their trouble. It seemed there wasn't a soul left who hadn't connected the earthquakes and those mysterious strangers in their tents. Not that there were many souls left to make that connection. Martha could count them on her fingers if she didn't include herself. Martha would have called the sheriff immediately after Frank and Elaine were killed, but the sheriff's office didn't exist anymore. They had moved in toward the city with the rest of the migrants in the face of the area's shifting climate. They could sometimes convince the St. Paul or Minneapolis Police Department to come help with disputes and other matters of law enforcement, but only sometimes. And as the years rolled on, those police departments had their own increasing problems to deal with. So... Martha did what the voice in her head told her to do. She was good and stayed out of the way and hoped the voice was telling the truth when it said they'd leave her alone. Martha, awake in bed early that autumn, finally thought about moving. Perhaps there really was nothing for her here the strangers had been in town for nearly five months. The earthquakes had grown in frequency to twelve or thirteen a day, and they were happening at night now, too. Waking her up with regularity two or three times a night. One had just done so. It was just after two a.m., and now Martha was having trouble falling back asleep. The government people, or whoever they were, had increased their activity. New black SUVs arrived weekly, carrying more people, more supplies, and more tents. She could hear them at all hours. The sounds of shouting tumbled down the hill all night. Martha started wearing earplugs to bed several weeks ago. She stared up at her ceiling, counting the pockmarks of the ceiling's texture and listening to the sound of her beating heart in her plugged ears to try and make herself sleepy once again. Her mind wandered, and she started thinking about the last time she saw somebody else in the neighborhood. Must have been weeks ago, or maybe longer. Her stomach turned a strange sensation for her while she laid in bed. Then it happened again. She sat up and looked around the dark room. Was it an earthquake? Sometimes the earthquakes messed with her equilibrium and she felt a bit sick. But nothing was shaking, exactly. There was a rumbling. And out the window she could see trees moving. Her stomach did another flip 
and she got out of bed, ready to run to the bathroom. Once she was on her feet, she could tell what was going on. She wrapped her robe around her body and hurried through the house to the front door. The entire town was rising and falling five or so feet every few seconds. Like sound waves, ripples were forming at the top of the hill underneath the largest tent and sending waves through the ground radiating outward. She watched as each one spread down the hill, then hit the houses across the street, pushing them upward, and then the houses on the other side of the street, including hers, in turn. Then they fell into a deep trough, only to do it again when the next shockwave reached them. With each movement, the street in front of her fractured, the pavement cracking into pieces. The abandoned houses across the street had begun crumbling from the stress, and Martha's house was sure to follow suit. She had to take a wide stance to remain standing. Inside her house, the shockwaves sent the whole foundation up at the same time, a steady platform to support her legs. But out here, each wave pushed the dirt below her feet into uneven peaks, and she was constantly moving her feet to avoid being thrown off balance. It's time, the woman's voice said inside Martha's head. There's no one left. We need you. She did her best to move forward, though it was a struggle. Still, Martha knew she had to make it to the top of that hill. Martha had, in her younger years, been quite active, but the hike up that trembling hill proved too much for her. She fell at several points, the strength in her legs failing from those constant shock waves. She got up each time, until she couldn't, and then laid on the dead meadow, trying to catch her breath. Martha felt hands on her shoulders, and then she was lifted off of the ground. Martha's head lazed to the side, and she saw the woman who had killed Frank had lifted her onto her shoulder and was carrying her up the remainder of the hill, into that tent village, and toward the largest tent in the center. She seemed completely unfazed by the tremors in the ground and carried Martha through the canvas barrier with ease. Inside, the woman set Martha down on the floor of the tent, and what Martha saw was not at all what she expected. First, the inside of the tent was peaceful, seemingly unaffected by the upheaval ripping apart the nearby area. Tens of people just like the strange woman walked to and fro in the tent, fiddling with this and that. Some of them stood at a railing that circled a large pit at the center of the tent, looking down. Not a single piece of machinery marred that environment. The only electric devices that Martha could pick out were the dim light bulbs and illuminating several work areas around the perimeter of the tent. None of those work areas, though, housed a computer, or a phone, or anything of the sort. 
just reams and reams of paper. Books, notebooks, slabs of wood with etchings on them. Stone tablets carved with inscriptions. Metal scaffolding anchored through the wooden floor and into the earth below the tent rose above the pit and constructed a sort of cage. In the cage was something terrible and beautiful to Martha. It gave off a faint glow. Bluish light seemed to trickle out of its very skin. Martha noticed the many chains attached to the many points of its body, wrapping its lengthy form around itself, using its own long limbs against it to bind it there in that prison. Isn't she lovely? The woman said to Martha inside of her head. And she's not the only one. We've found others. She's hungry, though. She's throwing a tantrum. And she only eats one thing. The woman again grabbed Martha and carried her to the railing circling the pit in the center of the tent. Down in that pit, which Martha could see now was some kind of excavation operation, were several clutches of eggs, large as a human, with the same faint blue glow. With some help, the woman strapped Martha into a metal basket, and then others, on the other side of the pit, pulled down on a chain, which began hoisting her up toward the creature. Pull by pull, Martha inched upward, and each bit of progress pushed her further into what Martha could only feel was some kind of mental oppression, some kind of mental fog. Soon, she was inches from the beast's enclosure. It was hard for her to maintain a thought, but she was able to plead, not out loud, but in her head, to the woman down below. The creature's chains were loosened slightly, enough that it could wiggle its horrible head attached to a serpentine neck, free. Please, please don't do this, Martha repeated to herself inside her own head, until she received an answer that was not the woman's. I'm sorry, but I'm hungry. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, Groundswell, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warren. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Earthquakes and Being Overdue. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out all the other shows. They're great. New episodes the second Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows.